Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is August 26th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Call Me on the Telemental Health Line, and our guest skeptic is Dr. Corey Heinz. He is an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia, and he is also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGM, Corey. Thanks, Ken. As always, it is good to be here. Now we are in spring, so you must have been in the saddle and out riding your bike across multiple mountains by now. Oh yeah. So we have had an awesome spring. Winter was really not even that bad. Um, we were able to ride pretty much the entire way through the year. I did have a really good weekend. I was supposed to go down to Asheville, um, do a camping trip, but that fell through. So we ended up doing two big rides uh, here in town. I did. It did turn into an expensive couple of rides because I broke a wheel. Um, so that's going to be a fun repair, but <laughs> Hey, you know what, if you're not breaking things, you're not riding hard enough. So the joys of riding a bike on a mountain. <laughs> yep. All right. What do you got for a case? Okay. So you are moonlighting at the veterans administration emergency department and are caring for an Iraq veteran complaining of post-traumatic stress disorder and severe anxiety. You desire a psychiatric consult and learn that you don't have in-person consult availability at this facility, but instead use telehealth services. You wonder about how this compares to an in-person consult. Well, mental health and behavioral complaints are common in the emergency department. Oh, maybe I should have had a, a trigger warning there. Just pull over because this could be really shocking that we are seeing a lot of mental health patients in the emergency department. But a shortage of mental health providers results in a high number of patients requiring transfer, being boarded in our departments for long periods of time, some who may have been appropriate for discharge. Telemental health has been shown in settings outside the VA to increase access to mental health providers, increase the proportion of patients discharged home, and decrease the number of patients transferred. However, what is not well studied is the effect of telemental health on post-evaluation utilization and processes of care, such as changes in medication, disposition, length of stay, involuntary holds, and the use of both chemical or physical restraints. So, Corey, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's episode of the SGEM? What is the effect of telemental health versus in-person consult on 30-day outcomes and processes of care during the visit, or as they say in Canada, processes of care? Oh, you're throwing out my accent at me, eh? All right. <clears throat> Do you have a reference? We're going to be discussing Han et al., the effect of telemental versus in-person mental health consults in the emergency department on 30-day utilization and process of care, academic emergency medicine, April 2023. Oh, yes. This is another <sighs> hot off the press, people. All right. Let's go through the PCOT, the population intervention comparison outcome and type of study. So what was the population? Veterans presenting to the VA Medical Center, EDs, and Urgent Care Centers. And the intervention? Telemental Health Consult administered via iPad and Apple FaceTime software. And what did they compare it to? An in-person mental health consultation. And let's go through their outcomes. What was the primary outcome of interest for this study? Primary outcome was a composite of 30-day return ED visits, 30-day return hospitalization after the index ED visit, and death from any cause. I think you meant to say composite. <laughs> All right. And how about the secondary outcomes? Number of psychiatric medications changed, 
disposition, length of stay, involuntary holds, use of parenteral benzodiazepines or haloperidol, and use of physical restraints or sedation. So just uh, saying haloperidol uh, puts this in a time capsule of knowing that it probably predates the reintroduction of uh, droperidol. Uh, what about the type of study? This was an exploratory retrospective cohort study. And it is an SGEM hot off the press, an SGEM hop. And we have the lead author on the show, Dr. Jin Han. He is an emergency physician at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee and a researcher with the Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center at the Tennessee Valley VA Healthcare System. Welcome to the SGEM, Jen. Uh, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you. And guess what? I am going to be in Nashville a month from now, visiting and at a course. Oh, cool. You got to hit me up. Maybe we can catch a beer together. And I'll bring you some cool skeptical prizes. All right. Well. <laughs> All right. Is there any particular reason that you dove into this area, telemental health? What got you inspired or interested in this area of research? So as a background, and uh, I'm actually a geriatric emergency medicine researcher with a special focus on delirium. But that said, I've always been interested in alternative models of care and how we deliver care to our older adults in the ED setting and how do we keep them out of the ED. And that's where telemedicine comes in. So Michael Ward, who's a senior author of this paper and leads the Telemental Health Initiative at our local VA, reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to study it. And I said, heck yes. And I think for several reasons. First, as a researcher, I just love to learn new things. And oftentimes these new things get applied to my own research. But the bigger thing is I got to collaborate with a cool bunch of uh, researchers and scientists and biostatisticians. And it was just an opportunity to uh, really collaborate with a great group of folks. And it was a really fun paper to write. I love listening to your enthusiasm, hanging out with a bunch of like cool researchers and biostatics. You were with the nerds. Welcome to the nerd zone, Jen. Um, Your background suggests that you must know my BFF, Chris Carpenter, then, because he's a geriatric guru. Oh, yeah. Chris Carpenter and I go way back and he is another awesome person to be around. I love awesome people. And he's one of them. The guy with the biggest brain out there when it comes to this kind of stuff. (laughs) I mean, uh, you know, you're in a room and you're wondering, you know, who's the smartest guy in the room? Find Chris, because he's the smartest guy in the room. Agreed. Uh, And and thank you for saying heck and not blowing my iTunes rating, you know, here on the (laughs) SGM. All right. Well, uh, can you give your groups, your authors conclusions to this paper that you had in the abstract? Our conclusions were that telemental health was not associated with our 30-day composite outcome of return ED visits, rehospitalizations, and death compared to traditional in-person mental health evaluations. However, we did find that telemental health was associated with increased length of stay in the emergency department and decreased odds of placing an involuntary psychiatric hold. And I think it's important to note that this was exploratory and retrospective, and we need to have additional studies to confirm these findings. And if these findings indeed are true, we got to figure out what the potential mechanisms are. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Corey and I are going to go through the checklist to probe the study for its validity and then go through some key results. And then we're going to bring you back. And I hope you're ready to talk nerdy to me. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So let's go through the quality checklist here, Corey. Did the study address a clearly focused issue? Yes, it did, Ken. 
And do you think the authors used an appropriate method to answer the question? They did. So the caveat being it's a retrospective and not randomized. Yeah. So if they're looking for associations, fine, but not being able to conclude causation. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? Yes, it was. And do you think the exposure, and the exposure was telemental health use, do you think that was accurately measured to minimize bias? Uh, yes, it was. And when they're looking at their primary outcome, do you think it was accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes, it was. And do you think the authors have identified all important confounding factors? I often say unsure to this because I think the word all makes it hard to know if they really didn't identify all or if there's others that we don't know about. Yeah, and that's that's one of the limitations of observational studies because there can be measured confounders. But what about unmeasured confounders, right? And if you don't know, it's the unknown unknowns. And so you can't know if you've identified all of the important ones, but you want to see that they've done a good job of trying to pinpoint any confounders to the data set. How about the follow-up of subjects? Do you think that was complete enough? I think so, and I'll have a caveat of that in the nerdy questions. And then number eight is always a little bit hard. It's, it's about how precise are the results or the estimate of risk, and you're really talking about confidence intervals, and that's sort of on a spectrum, isn't it? Like how tight are the confidence intervals and how, how wide are they and what do you consider precise? But what did you put down? I said these were fairly narrow, fair, fairly narrow confidence intervals. I agree. It's somewhat of a judgment call as to what is narrow enough. Yeah. And when we, when we report the actual point estimate of effect size, we have that 95% confidence interval around that point estimate. And each individual who's reviewing it can go, yeah, that looks really tight or that looks really precise or yeah, those are pretty wide. And so they can actually interpret that for themselves. How about the results? Do you believe them? I do. And do you think the results could be applied to the local population and, and use your own filter, like where you work? Do you think that fits? I'm going to say no here, and I think we address that later in the area questions. Yeah, I would have said no as well to this question, and uh, it's very specific to this type of research cohort. Do the results of this study fit with other available evidence, though? Yes, they do. And the 12th question, how about the funding or any conflicts of interest? So this funding came from a grant for the Office of Rural Health of the Veterans Health Administration and National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, and there are no declared conflicts of interest. All right, that's the quality checklist. Let's go through the results section. They identified almost 500 veterans to include in the cohort. The mean age was 55. Oh, yes, the double nickel. Almost 90% were male, and that's no big surprise. But what I really like to see is that 27% were rural. And we often see studies that involve just an urban population. So it was mm -hmm. nice to see more than a quarter were from a rural area. Now, high-risk chief complaints, things like, oh, how sick were these people? Suicidal ideations, homicidal ideations, agitation or psychosis. So how sick were these mental health patients? 29%. So almost a third were in that higher risk chief complaint category. And of the cohort, they had 70% receive telemental health because remember, this is not a randomized control trial. So they're not randomizing patients to you're going to get the telemental health service or you're going to get the in-person consultation. This was a retrospective cohort study. So 70% got telemental health. That means 30%, the minority, received in-person mental health evaluations. Corey, what was the key result out of this data set? 
There was no statistical difference seen in the primary outcome between telemental health and in-person mental health evaluation. Yeah, so that primary outcome was a composite, 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 composite. <laughs> okay, it was three things put together. 30-day return visits, rehospitalization, and all-cause mortality. So what were the actual numbers? So for the composite outcome, the 23.4% of the telemental health visits met it versus 17.3% in person. And that was an adjusted odds ratio of 1.47 with confidence intervals of 0.87 to 2.49. Yeah. And so that's where people can interpret uh, and think about how they would apply that result and how wide they think those confidence intervals are. Are there any secondary outcomes that you want to highlight? Yeah. And so I find it interesting that, uh, that not very many of the secondary outcomes reached statistical significance. However, involuntary holds did. Uh, the telemental health consults were less likely to have an involuntary hold brought against the patient or for the patient. And I find that interesting thinking about the, the concept here, you know, from my own work experience, we have telemental health, although they're not providers, they're more of a counselor type situation. And we very rarely use involuntary holds, but I would have assumed that the person who was there with the patient might be less likely to place them under an involuntary hold than the person who wasn't there with the patient. But clearly that's not what happened here. Yeah, that was really interesting that that association, it was a 10% absolute difference, 17% versus 27%. And my thin slicing would have been the same as yours. Oh, well, seeing them in person, you would get all this extra nonverbal mm -hmm. gestalt in the room stuff and maybe feel more comfortable sending them home. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it was more likely to be placed on an involuntary hold. That's an interesting thing to drill down into. So maybe it's the opposite where the in-person gestalt stuff is what makes you go, yeah, you're not, you can't go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. yeah interesting. All right, well, let's get to the talk nerdy section because that's always my favorite section. And we're going to bring back Jen and we have five questions we're going to ask him. Again, you ready to go full nerd? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Bring it on. So uh, the first question, and uh, you know, we see this with data sets uh, that come out of the VA, is the external validity. Uh, the cohort consists mostly of middle-aged men. 55-year-old was the mean age and 90% male. How do you think this limits the external validity to other populations outside the VA? And that's a great question. And I think it does limit the external validity because when you look at other cohorts, uh, mental health cohorts in the ED outside the VA, they tend to be a little bit younger and there's a more even distribution between males and females. But I think the other thing to point out is that a lot of our veterans are more likely to have PTSD and more likely to have traumatic brain injury at higher rates in the civilian population. So that also limits the external validity of our uh, bindings to outside the VA as well. Interesting. Yeah, thank you. So that also kind of gets into our second question, which is baseline demographics. There were several demographic differences between patients who received telemental health and those who received an in-person consult. Do you have any thoughts as to why that occurred? Well, yeah, we. I thought about this a little bit, and I think some are perhaps, you know, pretty straightforward. So, for example, we found that patients who had an in-person uh, consultation were more likely to have a medical complaint in addition to their psychiatric complaint. And it's possible that our mental health providers prefer to do 
an in-person evaluation for that patient because they wanted to make sure they don't want they don't want they wanted to make sure they didn't miss anything. But it's also possible that these differences are secondary to random chance. So, for example, the in-person patient group actually had a higher proportion of being depressed or having a past history of depression. And I don't know a good reason why that would occur. So I think there's a lot of um, random chance causing these differences as well. Do you know how people were, I mean, and this may be information that you don't really have, and that is once you implemented the telemental health option, how it was that people were choosing when to do one versus the other? Was there any protocolization of that? No, so there was no protocolization, and it's also very provider dependent. There are some providers who strictly do telemental health, and there's some providers that do both, right? And really, there's no um, protocol that says you have to do this via telemental health um, or um, in person. So it was really left up to the provider how they wanted to provide um, their mental health consultation. Gotcha. And yeah, this is the reason to, to bring this up is that you know when you look at these baseline demographic differences and and given that this was a retrospective study and not randomized, you have to wonder where the sources of bias could be. You know, why did and I, I don't have the actual numbers right in front of me, but I think, for instance, I think the telemental health were more likely to be homeless. Yep. You have to wonder, like, were there people who didn't take certain demographics as seriously and felt like in-person was more important or more serious? I, some, some version of those mm-hmm. in- unconscious biases we all have. Yeah, and that could certainly be driving uh, these differences, and you bring up a great point. Well, that's going to lead into nerdy point number three. And this is, you know, this is something that gets under my skin always. This is about the primary outcome. This goes back to a 1980s movie called Highlander for all you kids out there who haven't seen it. (laughs) Highlander in that movie, you know, when the quickening happens and, you know, somebody uh, gets killed off and there's going to be one immortal left because in the end, there can be only one primary outcome. And you set the net bigger. And I get that, you know, you, you might have not as many frequent uh, data points for the outcome. So people will put a composite or composite outcome. We see this a lot in the cardiac literature with major adverse cardiac events, the MACE events. So they bundle it together so you can get a primary outcome, but it's a bundle. Uh, You did separate out those components, the 30 day return, the 30 day hospitalization and the, and the death or mortality rate uh, as exploratory outcomes. Why couldn't you just pick one? Why couldn't you sit around the table and all go, okay, we're going to have this as our primary outcome. Why put it together in a composite for this outcome? I think you summarized it nicely, um, why composite outcomes are done. And it's what I think of as a statistical cheat, just to maximize your statistical power. So Given our sample size, we didn't feel that we had enough events individually to have adequate power to come up with a firm conclusion. And that's why we combined those three outcomes. So we also felt that there was some face validity to combining these outcomes. So for example, 30-day rehospitalizations often are linked to 30-day return ED visits, and both are markers of resource utilization, and both are closely related. As far as death is concerned, we expect the death to be very rare in our cohort. So, at this, you know, it, it was, I kind of tossed back and forth on what to do with death, but I decided to combine it with our composite outcome just because I felt death was important. But 
wasn't enough to stand by itself. But fortunately, in our cohort, there was no, actually, there were no deaths. So that wasn't big of an issue uh, for this study. But I do acknowledge the weaknesses of the composite outcome. And I'm so, sorry that this may have annoyed you. <laughs> oh, no, it's, <laughs> it's not annoying. I'm just having fun. Please don't take it too personally. It's just, I, I think it's a good teaching point that, you know, when you see primary outcomes and that there's a composite outcome, there's reasons the researchers do that. And, you know, for power purposes yeah. and rare outcomes. And thank goodness that there was no deaths, right? Uh, yeah. You know, you'd hate to say that the you know, number of deaths was driving this outcome. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm happy that people didn't die during this retrospective <laughs> um, study but, in yeah. mental health. And as you know, research is about trade-offs, right? There's no perfect study and you do your best to minimize the trade-offs and make sure the trade-offs are worth it. Right. So I felt like in this case, a composite outcome approach was worth it, but, you know, again, acknowledging the weaknesses, but yeah, you know, I appreciate you uh, bringing this up and it's a, you know, something that, yeah, I also have a pet peeve when I see it, but having been on the other side now, I understand why <laughs> people do it. Exactly, right? You know, and you you describe that very well, that there there's trade-offs, right? And there's no perfect study and it's just what it is. And then it gets interpreted, right? It's how you interpret it from there. So fourth question is uh, the loss to follow-up question. A lot of studies which look at 30-day outcomes or outcomes down the road will have a loss to follow-up and they'll include those patients in one or the other group to kind of give a sense of what the worst case or best case scenarios are. We could not find mention of patients being lost to follow-up, which could introduce bias if they are if the outcomes aren't accurate. Was there, were there any patients that were lost to follow-up? So another excellent point. Short answer is no. Uh, the nice thing about the veterans who use a VA healthcare system is that they tend to stick to the VA uh, for their medical needs. So, but we also wanted to make sure that we capture patients who visited outside our local VA system. So we use a national database, VA database called the Clinical Data Warehouse, which tracks visits um, outside our local VA um, hospitals and emergency department. And the VA also tracks veterans who visit non-VA emergency departments or who are hospitalized at non-VA medical centers. So I think we felt fairly confident that our 30-day outcomes were fairly accurate and um, with minimal loss to follow-up. You know, if this was conducted at my other shop, a Vanderbilt, um, I would have less confidence of this. But I think with the VA uh, population, we have a fairly captive patient population. So um, I think follow-up was, was uh, less of an issue for this particular group. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That makes perfect sense. So our fifth and final nerdy question, and we've sort of hinted towards this, this was on length of stay. The results show a longer length of stay and decreased use of involuntary hold. So we mentioned that earlier in the telemental health group. So the ones that were being seen virtually as opposed to in person. So let's get your thoughts on that. Why do you think that occurred? What do you think uh, explains that? So I think you guys explained nicely why possibly the decreased use in voluntary holds occurred in the telemental health group, but the length of stay differences was a head scratcher for sure and was something that we really discussed in our research group. I think the most important thing to note is that ED length of stay was a secondary outcome. And as you know, that when you have multiple comparisons, you're more likely to have a false positive finding. But let's say this association is true 
and telemental health is indeed associated with increased length of stay. So what are the potential mechanisms for this? Well, I think the first mechanism is that uh, telemental health is reliant upon techno technology, which is prone to failure. There may have been poor internet connection. It takes time to set up, which can be a pain, especially when the ED is uh, really, really busy. But I think it's also possible that the telemental health, health, health providers may have spent more time with the patient. So I don't know if you've ever done a telemental or telemedicine evaluation, but it's a little bit, it's very different. It's very easy to miss subtle visual cues or emotional cues or verbal cues over, um, over an iPad. And it, it, let talk about doing a physical examination. It's, doing, it's near impossible to do over, over uh, FaceTime. So I think maybe the telemental health providers, when they were doing it, spent more time with the patients to make sure they weren't missing anything. So those are two possible explanations. Are they the same providers uh, that are doing the telemental health and the inpatient? Or is it different cohorts of clinicians? So I think you, you know, as I said um, previously, that it's very provider dependent. There's some providers who lean towards doing more telemedicine. And there are some providers who are mostly in person. And there are some providers who do both, right? But I think that may be also driving the differences or the types of providers as well. All right. Well, those were our five nerdy questions. Um, do you want to tease the audience with where do you think this research is heading or what are you doing for future research? Because this has generated some hypotheses about, you know, length of stay and voluntary holds. Is there is there plans to do something prospective or randomized in the future? Yeah, so we're very interested in confirming these findings using a prospective trial, preferably randomized or step wedge design, a cluster randomized trial. Uh, to confirm these findings, but more importantly, to really dig in of how these processes of care are impacted by telemental health. But I think there's a more important question, how feasible and scalable is telemental health if we roll this out nationally? Because first of all, I don't think we have enough emergency psychiatrists to do this across all VAs. And the other thing is the physicians are also relatively expensive. So right now we're looking at alternative models of telemental health. So we're studying whether or not uh, we can use, whether it's feasible to use a licensed clinical social worker to perform the initial mental health evaluation. And the emergency psychiatrists will only get involved in less than straightforward or challenging cases. And Michael Ward, who's a senior author on this paper, is actually looking um, at this um, right now as we, we speak, and it's funded by the Office of Rural Health as well. Well, thanks for letting us know where this is uh, headed. Now it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Corey, what do we have? So can we agree with the author's conclusions, but we are concerned about the external validity outside of the VA system. All right, and give us an SGEM bottom line, if you will. Telemental health consults did not significantly change outcomes and had some interesting process differences when compared with in-person consults in the United States Veterans Administration healthcare system. So how are you going to resolve that case of the uh, soldier with the PTSD? Well, given that you only have telemental health services available, you connect to a TMH provider who assesses your patient, makes some medication changes, and discharges the patient home to follow up within a week. And how are you going to apply this retrospective study clinically? Telemental health may serve as a good option for mental health consultation when in-person evaluation isn't available. And what are you going to actually say to the veteran? Sir, I'm going to set you up for a mental health evaluation. You'll talk to a provider, but they won't be here in the building. 
Instead, we're going to use a video conferencing app. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. And last week's winner was Dr. Kay Dingwell from PEI, that's Prince Edward Island. She knew that Tapau was the name of the respected Vulcan leader in Star Trek, the original series episode called Amok Time. What's the question this week? What was the first Veterans Administration Medical Center in the United States? So this is the, the name of it or where it was? Yes. Yes. Okay. So we're looking for <laughs> the name of the uh, first Veterans Administration uh, Medical Center and where was it located? Where was it located? All right. So if you know the answers, then send an email to the SGEM at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive one of the cool new skeptical prizes. All right. Now it's your turn, SGEMers. What do you think of this episode on telemental health? What questions do you have for Gene and his team? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP or post your feedback on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in academic emergency medicine. Yeah, and I think this is a really important part of the SGM hop process because there's things that we didn't ask and that we didn't get to in the show. So you might have questions like, hey, was this cost efficient? How much does it cost to have an in-person consultation versus setting up something with technology or virtual or some other things that we didn't think of? We have Jin standing by for the next week to answer your nerdy questions. So please get on the Twitter, talk to us. Use the hashtag SGEMHOP and post your feedback. Thanks, Jen, for coming on the SGEM and talking about your <laughs> odd off the press publication. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Corey, someday, someday, and I keep promising this every three to four months, someday. I mean, I'm going to Nashville. I've got to get down there and see you and go for a bike ride. I would love to have you. I think we're both really busy and when the stars align, it'll happen. Well, I think COVID took a big chunk of that time out of it, yeah. didn't it? With, you know, like, you know, national borders being closed. <laughs> right. But I do have a Mission Impossible party coming up July 14th to 16th. It's a I weekend, of course, following up on the huge success of my Top Gun Maverick weekend last <laughs> year. Following along with the Tom Cruise theme, we're going to have a Mission Impossible party. Should you, your mission, Corey, should you choose to accept it is to come up to the Canadas and visit me in our red chairs and hang out. And Jen, you're invited too, because you know, you like, you know, come on up and have a beer and stuff like that. Sit by the fire. But this message will self-destruct in the next 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an excellent time. Yeah. Well, to finish the show, um, Jen, can you give the SGM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week. Bye.